0: All right, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there is a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not see him because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, saying, he has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Uh, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We begin to notice throughout this series, in all of our stories, we kind of see three characters. We see Jesus, we see someone who is called a sinner, And then we see Pharisees or religious leaders. Now, in this passage, Luke chapter 19, it doesn't say Pharisees, but it gives a reference to the Pharisees. And so I want to take us quickly just on a journey of passages we've already covered so we can see this theme specifically dealing with the Pharisees. And we're beginning to see a theme where the Pharisees are constantly the antagonistic party within the stories. And so if you would, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 30 and 32, let me read it to you. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Notice the same language that we just saw in Luke 19. They grumbled, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A couple chapters later, in chapter 7, verse 37, it says this, And behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she... Is a sinner. See this continuous theme where the disciples are calling and condemning people in their sin. Luke chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then we come to our passage again, Luke 19 verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Do we see this theme that the Pharisees have for disdain for sinners? This past week in community group on Friday night, our community group um, does sermon based discussion, meaning that we discuss the previous week's sermon. So this past Friday night, we're discussing the sermons within this series. And someone points out and makes a very wise observation that we keep kind of giving the Pharisees a hard time, but actually their theology is accurate in all of these stories. Now we look at them and we see that Jesus rebukes them for different things, but their theology is accurate, meaning... That they recognize the truth of the situation, they recognize and then call and uh, diagnose the situation based off of their theology. However, Jesus continues to rebuke them and the question was asked, why is it that the Pharisees keep being rebuked although they have right theology? And this brings us to truth number one, because I want to answer that question as we come to this text, because it's applicable to this series, and I'm not going to spend tons of time on it, but I do want to answer the question. Truth number one, we see the problem of the Pharisees. What is the problem of the Pharisees? And I've just simply said it this way. The problem of the Pharisees is that they sacrificed people on the altar of theological accuracy. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. is Theological accuracy is a good thing. It's this goal for us that we want to here at New Hope to be theologically accurate. Theology is important. Doctrine is important. However, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22, when asked a question about right theology and right doctrine, it goes like this. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test Jesus. He says this, Teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? What's the question? It's a question of theology. He's looking to see if Jesus' theology is accurate. And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophet. I want you to notice closely Jesus' answer. Jesus gives an answer of what we call as ethics, meaning that ethics answers the question, how do I apply my beliefs? How do I live this out? And Jesus, when asked the question about what is the whole purpose and what is right theology, he says right theology is for the purpose of loving God and loving others. Why am I bringing this out? Because theology, listen to me, theological accuracy for us, we want to be theologically accurate, and theology is important. Now, let me pause. Why is theology, and why is it important for us to be accurate? When we think about studying God's Word, God's Word is God's revelation of Himself to us. Let me illustrate it this way. You've heard me say this before. But when I was pursuing my wife in dating... When I'm pursuing her, I'm seeing some things about her. I can tell her height, I can tell her hair, I can tell she has long hair, she's, she's pretty, and I go, hey, I want to get to know her. However, who gets to determine if I have a relationship with her? She does, right? She gets to determine if she wants to reveal herself to me. She gets to determine how much she wants to let me know about, and this is what dating is all about, right? We go and ask questions and learn about and find all these things and get to know, and over time, she's what revealing herself so that I can have a relationship, but listen to me. I don't get to determine if she prefers sour candy over chocolate candy, right? I'm using an illustration that's real because I can't figure out why she likes sour candy over chocolate candy. I just can't figure it out, but she does. She would always choose sour over chocolate, and I'm always choosing chocolate, but I don't get to determine what she likes. However, as she reveals what she likes, I want to know what she's like because if I am not accurate in her beliefs or what she likes and I bring home the wrong candy on Tuesday for our anniversary, then that's not a very good anniversary. We've been married nine years and you still don't know what kind of candy I like? I'm I'm giving her more than candy, right? I'm doing much better for an anniversary gift than candy. But go with the illustration. If I'm not right in what is true about her, then I don't really actually know her. So theology and accurate theology is important because God's Word in theology is the study of God. And if we're not accurate in our theology, then we don't actually really know God. It's through truths about God that we come to know Him. But listen to me. Theological accuracy is a means to an end though. It's not the end itself, meaning the whole point of having doctrine and theology is summed up in what Jesus said, to love him with all we have, to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. The purpose of theological accuracy is a means to the end of loving God and loving people. This is the problem of the Pharisees, is because they turn the means to an end into an end itself. Let me illustrate that this way. You think of it, you've got a family, you've got two parents, and um, just, let's just go with one of the parents, just for sake of illustration. One of the parents gets a job for the purpose of providing for the family, right? We have bills to pay, right? It costs money to eat, and so one of the parents gets a job to provide for the family. And the purpose of the job, hopefully it's a job they enjoy, but practically speaking, one of the purpose of the job is for the welfare of the family to provide for their needs and their wants, but this is a common story. We've heard a story similar to this. Somewhere along the way, though, the parent focused too much on the job. They work too much, and they turn the job, which was supposed to be a means to an end for providing for the family, they turn the job into the end itself. They go to work for the sake of work only, and they end up working long hours, and then you have a conversation of, hey, you're always at work. I never see you. I would love for you to be around the kids more. And then it usually goes, well, I'm trying to provide for you. And then I I encounter this actually a lot in counseling. And so one of my jobs when I'm talking to couples in this situation, I try to point out to the person who unintentionally has turned work into an end itself to go, you went to work to provide for your family, and I need you to know, you think the more you work, you're providing for them, and you are. But I need you to notice there comes to a point where you can go too far, and it can actually hurt your family because you're not around your family. What's the point? Is that the means to an end turns into an end itself. This is the problem of the Pharisees. And this is something that you and I need to be careful of that we see common throughout the Gospel of Luke and all these stories that the Pharisees were doing is they were turning their theological accuracy into an, uh, into an end itself. When their theological accuracy, when theology is calling us to love people, but the Pharisees often uh, were indignant towards people and condemned people, I want you to see that the very theology that was causing them to love people, they actually chose not to love people for the sake of theology, and when they did that, they actually condemned themselves in their own theology. I know that was kind of confusing, but I want you to pay attention. If my theology is causing me to love someone, because all theology is for the purpose, Jesus says, of loving God and loving others, but for whatever reason, the Pharisees, for the sake of theological accuracy, chose to sacrifice people, meaning to not make them important, for the sake of having right theology. But what's the point of having right theology? If you don't love people, you actually condemn yourself in your own theology. Because the whole point of theology is to love people. See the problem of the Pharisees? Why is this important to us? It's important to us is because one of the most common things I hear from people outside of the church is they will, they will talk about how often, and this is often true for theological conservatives, that we put so much emphasis on our theology that if we're not careful, that we can actually not love people the way Christ called us to love. So are you telling me that the Pharisees, are you suggesting that if the Pharisees sacrificed the love of people for right theology, are you telling me that we need to sacrifice right theology for the love of people? No. That's actually the fallacy of the theological liberals. See, we got these two ditches that we got to be careful. Theology and love is not an either-or dilemma. It's a both-and dilemma. That actually right theology always leads us to a Christ-like love. Jesus makes this argument in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, when he says this, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tie the mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect the justice of people and the love of God. These you ought to have done, which was to tithe the mint, the rue, and the herb, but without neglecting the others of justice and love. See what Jesus is saying? You Pharisees are focusing on theological accuracy, but you're not focusing on love of people. Yes, you should have focused on theological accuracy, but you should have also focused on love of others. And the encouragement for us is that how do we avoid the problem of the Pharisees? It's just this honest challenge for us to make sure that as we pursue theological accuracy, it should always stir our hearts' affections to God and to others. I preach, and I want to faithfully preach God's Word to you every week, because I believe that without God's Word, I don't have anything to say. But listen to me. The goal of my preaching is not just for you to have right theology. The goal of my preaching is that that right theology will stir your hearts and affections towards Christ and worship and towards the love of other people around you. Amen? Truth number two, the response of repentance. Now let's jump back into Luke chapter 19 and let's unpack it a little bit more. The response of repentance. Read with me in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord... The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Let me ask this question. How does someone who is so focused on obtaining money, he's a chief tax collector who is rich, his job, his life was all about getting money. How does someone who is so focused on getting money just turn around and give money away? I want us to really comprehend who Zacchaeus was and how he is viewed in his society and why Pharisees uh, saw Jesus as a negative for uh, hanging out with him. I was, read a book and finished a book this weekend where part of the story is uh, of a, is telling the story of a guy who is a prisoner of war in World War II, American soldier, prisoner of war for two years, and he spent two years in this Uh, a prison with uh, approximately tens of thousands of other soldiers. So it's a massive prison. Um, And in this prison, there wasn't a lot of provisions. And so men were uh, starving, men were sick, and um, there wasn't a lot of the needs to provide for everyone. And so the story is of one particular main character who uh, was sick, and a friend of his has taken him to the hospital the hospital in the prison, all run by Americans, but uh, the enemy isn't providing a lot of resources. And so they go, and he's got malaria and other things, and he needs just basic meds, but the hospital doesn't have them. And he's asking the doctors, how can I get this? How can I get this? Is there a black market here in the prison that I can get this from? And he goes, actually, there's a guy behind Ward 4 under the tree. Go talk to him. So he goes out, and he sees it's another American soldier who's also a prisoner of war. And he goes and he notices that this American soldier isn't losing weight and doesn't really seem like he's starving. In the story, it tells that the prisoner, the main character, was about 6'1 and believed to have been about 120 pounds at this time. So imagine 6'1, 120 pounds, super skinny, just starving. And he goes to this other American soldier who has the meds that he needs, but the American soldier who has the meds tries to sell it for a dollar a pill. You've been in prison for two years, you don't have a dollar. A dollar, first of all, in 1940 is way more than a dollar today. But when you've been a prisoner for two years, you don't have that money. And the story is of the soldier who is trying to help his friend get so angry that he ends up almost killing the other American soldier because he gets so angry at him and says, you're worse than the enemy because you're willing to profit off your own mankind in our misery. Think about that. Imagine you're in this situation, and it's not the enemy who's robbing you, but it's your own American brother who's fighting with you, is willing for his own survival and his own pleasure to take something away from you that you need for life. This is precisely the way that they looked at tax collectors. Tax collectors were those who had betrayed their own mankind to extort from their own people in order to give to the imperial country, Rome. They would take from others for their own gain and for the, uh, the enemy, if you will, but the, the imperial country. And so they looked at tax collectors as outcasts for this reason. because they're willing to bring harm to their own people. And this was Zacchaeus, that he so desired money that he was willing to run over his own countrymen to become rich as a tax collector. How do you go from that to giving away? How do you make that process? It's a response of repentance. All of us seek security in the thing that we believe will save us. All of us seek security in the thing that we believe will save us. Zacchaeus went from finding his security in money to finding his security in God's love. This is caused, the response of repentance, and this was caused by a reordering of loves. There's three things I want to say about repentance for us. The first is this. Repentance is from the heart. Repentance is from the heart. You can confess with your mind and you can understand you've done something wrong with your mind. But repentance is from the heart. It's a reordering of loves. We see that Zacchaeus went from focusing his security and his seeking his salvation in money. And then all of a sudden when he has found Jesus, his loves now are changed. He goes from an instance from loving one thing to loving something else, and therefore he's able to give it away. How can I illustrate that repentance is from the heart? It's, the differ- it's like this it's the difference between someone telling you that honey is sweet and you actually tasting it and experiencing it yourself. It's a big difference. Imagine you've never had honey, and people are telling you, honey is sweet, honey is sweet, honey is sweet. You're like, I, I think I can imagine what that's like. I can comprehend it, I believe it to be true. But the moment that someone gives you honey and you eat it. We had some friends of ours in Mississippi, and this is going to confirm stereotypes in Mississippi, but this is a family friend of ours that they literally grew everything they ate. Everything they ate. And he constantly supplied us with jars of honey from their beehives. And it was just this fresh, all-natural honey, and it was so Good, so imagine you've never had honey and you got this friend like, hey, this, this is real good. I'm like, it's from bees. Like, come on, man. It can't be. It's so good. It's real sweet. I, I think I get it. But imagine the moment you taste it for the first time. It changes things. You experience it. You encounter it. You understand. It goes from being a concept to something that is real. This is repentance from the heart. We talk about repentance as turning from one thing to the next, and it is. It's turning away from sin and it's turning to Christ understanding that He is our Savior. But this comes from a reordering of loves. Before meeting Jesus, money was Zacchaeus' security and greed was his sin. But after meeting Jesus, God was his security and generosity was his gift. We said earlier in Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment, first and second great commandment is to love God and to love others. Notice Zacchaeus. Before encountering Christ, seeking salvation... And the extortion of others when he encountered Christ, all of a sudden, this wasn't just an intellectual mind shift. This was his heart all of a sudden went from being willing to extort from others for his personal gain to go, I've already found what my heart is longing for. This money is of no value. I will actually give it all back away. Repentance is a change of heart. It is from the heart. It's a reordering of love's. I have conversations, um, unfortunately, too much. But this is just understanding. This is this is all of us. I, I'm in this boat as well. But I have conversations a lot as a pastor, where I have to, or I have to confront sin in other people's lives. And then in that those conversation, it it often comes where I challenge to repent. I challenge you to turn from Christ to be willing to do whatever it takes. And I'll, sometimes I will get conversations from people who. Who will say something, well, I, I can repent and, and I'll confess when this, this, or this happens. Notice the conditions, and I, I want to make a point here. That if there is conditions to repentance, then there's still something that's more important than turning to Christ. I want to say this lovingly, and this is precisely Zacchaeus, the most important thing in his life... Said, this is of no value, and there is no conditions for my repenting of my heart to Christ. Why? Because when we have conditions, it's telling that our heart still is seeking security in something besides Jesus. But in repentance, it's a change of heart where we say that I no longer seek salvation in the creation, but I turn to the Creator for my salvation. He is my everything. It's a reordering of loves, firstly. Second, repentance is costly notice with Zacchaeus he started his repentance with i'll give half away to the poor and then if i have extorted from anybody i'll give them four times back what i took and i'm i'm honestly i'm i'm confused with the math it doesn't really make sense why because he has everything he has from extorting from others so how is he going to give back four times what he has i don't really know i don't know how it works but i want us to see the extravagance and the costliness of his repentance To him, it was expensive. Now listen to me. He did not give away his money as a means to earning salvation. He gave away his money as a response for receiving salvation. Once he had encountered Christ, his loves had changed. He no longer loved and sought after security and salvation and money. And therefore, it was of no value in comparison to Jesus Christ. And he said, I am willing to give it away. Repentance is costly, but it's worth it. Likewise for us, when we repent, it will cost us many things. It will cost us many worldly things. It might cost us money. It might cost us a reputation, a job, a family. And for many in this world, repenting and turning to Christ will cost people their lives. But it's worth it. And I want us to see that repentance coming from the heart is a change of character. It's a change of who we are. It cannot be faked. Confession can be faked. Repentance cannot. Thirdly, repentance ultimately is turning from a false savior to a true savior. I want us to notice Zacchaeus here. He already has everything by world centers. He is a rich man, but he in repentance, he turned from a false savior to a true savior. All of us are seeking salvation in something. The question is, is it a true Savior? And there is only one true Savior. First, we see the problem of the Pharisees. Second, we see a response and repentance. And third, we see the seeking of the Savior. The seeking of the Savior. And we're going to wrap it up, but let me read the end of our passage in Luke chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. Jesus says this, Today salvation has come to this house since. He also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Visualize with me, imagine you're Zacchaeus. You wake up, and you're in this mansion. I don't really know how big his house was, but he's rich, right? He's got money. He's got all these things. He's a chief tax collector, and so he's got other people working for him. Some would simply say, to oversimplify, that by world standards, he, he was pretty set. He had it made, but he knew deep in his heart that that this thing wasn't a true savior, that the things of this world can never save. But he keeps hearing about this Jesus guy. He hears about how Jesus is healing and loving people and encouraging people. And he, he hears that, uh, that Jesus is in his town and he's got to, I've got to go see him. But the crowd's there and he can't see Jesus. And so he is willing to, even at the risk of his reputation, he decides to climb a tree. So he's kind of like, uh, it's, it's pretty clear that he's. Kind of in a sight of people just because he wants to put his eyes on Jesus. Because he, what are what if, what if Jesus really is the Savior of the world? He's got to see for himself. Luke does a good job in Luke chapter 19, verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. I emphasize that because There where he says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, is the same language that Jesus uses in verse 10 when he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want us to see that Zacchaeus was a seeker looking for salvation, but Jesus was a Savior who was seeking Zacchaeus. Luke plays on this idea to communicate the reality of a Savior who is seeking after us. I want us to be encouraged this evening that whether we are conscious of it or not, our hearts are seeking salvation. Our hearts are seeking security in something. We are looking. We will give our lives to find whether it be security in something or significance in something, whether it be a person, whether it be a job, whether it be an identity, whether it be an education, whether it be where we live or whatever it may be, we are seeking all the things of this world consciously or unconsciously because our heart is longing for a Savior. But here's the encouragement of this story and truth number three of this idea of a seeking Savior is that while you are seeking it, you have a Savior who is seeking you. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word representing Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. Verse 14, And the Word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the beauty of the gospel, and here's the beauty of the love of Jesus, is that while you and I are lost and out-seeking, Jesus is out-seeking us. That I'm so grateful that, to kind of put myself in uh, the story, that being Zacchaeus looking for salvation... I'm so grateful that Jesus found me. When he makes this statement today, salvation has come to this house. I want us to see two things about salvation. First, salvation is a result. Salvation is something that is done in us. Salvation is something that Christ does when he, according to Ephesians 2, takes us from death and under the judgment and wrath of a holy God, and he takes us to life. It is a result that we take going from finding our salvation in something that can't save to finding our salvation and security in the person of Jesus. It's a reordering of loves in our hearts. It is a result. But maybe more importantly, salvation is a person. When he makes this statement today, salvation has come to this house. The person of Jesus has come to his house. He sees Zacchaeus and he says, Hey man, come down from this sycamore tree. How many of you grew up in church? Songs coming and playing in your head right now. Maybe if you heard this song of Zacchaeus and I can't remember it and you don't want me to sing it for you even if I could. But there is a song and I can just imagine, hey Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house today. Do you hear the beauty of that and the love of that statement? He sees and recognizes that Zacchaeus is a heart that is out seeking salvation and the Savior is out seeking him. You may be in here today in in similar ways. You're not in a sycamore tree, but you may be kinda like Zacchaeus. You may have heard that Jesus about this Jesus guy, and you may be exploring, you may be going, I've I've tried all these other things and nothing my heart is still empty, my heart is still longing. I still feel as though something is missing. And understand that Jesus is not just something that just fulfills us. Jesus is much greater than that. But however, Jesus did create us for himself. Therefore, we will never be fulfilled if we're not in him. So maybe you're out seeking and you just, this is the closest church nearby or whatever it may be. But would you be encouraged today that while you are out seeking, Christ is out seeking you. And you are not here by happenstance. We see the seeking of a savior who is out looking For someone who is lost. I'm so grateful that one time. When I was lost. And did not know Christ. Christ came in and said. Hey I'm seeking after you. Let me ask you this question. Are you still seeking salvation? Have you been found by Jesus? Are you seeking the saviors of this world? Or can you honestly say. The savior has found me. It's one thing for us to find him. It's another thing for him to find us. And the story here is a beautiful picture of Jesus out seeking and saving the lost. We see a beautiful picture of a seeking savior, but we also see the beautiful story of a salvation of another seeker. Listen to this question and conclusion. Are you a seeker who has found salvation in the savior who seeks? It's a little tongue-tied, but let me say it again. Listen to me. Are you a seeker, like Zacchaeus, who has found salvation in a savior? who is seeking after you. This is the beautiful story of the gospel. All all our preaching, all our theology, is bringing us, ultimately, to, to come and surrender to Jesus. Because it is only in Jesus that we find our salvation. Does your heart agree with your mind in repentance? It's one thing for us to go, yeah, I believe, that Jesus is Lord. I believe the truth of that. I believe it in my mind. It's another thing to experience the love of Jesus personally. It's another thing to taste honey to use that illustration. It's another thing for your heart to be changed to encounter Jesus. It's another thing for you to be like Zacchaeus and hear all the stories about Jesus. But it's another thing when Jesus comes walking in your front door to have a meal with you. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus is seeking after Are you a seeker who has found salvation in the Savior who seeks? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for today. And we thank you that when we gather together in worship, we can hear the gospel and we can hear your word preached so that our hearts' affections may be stirred unto you. And that we gather and we worship tonight to glorify you, Jesus. To say with our mouth to say with our mind and to say with our heart our will and our emotions that you are lord that you're our savior you're what we are longing for and just like with Zacchaeus when we find you the things of this world lose their value father i pray for the hearts in this room tonight just in with great love but with great care That if there are any lost hearts, to use the language from this passage, if they're lost, meaning that they're not found in you, tonight would they find you? Better yet, would you find them? Would they see that as they are seeking salvation, not knowing necessarily if it's in the person of Jesus, that you are the Savior? You're a person. You are salvation. And you seek after us. What an incredible story that we are unworthy of love, but yet you salt us so, so that you could lavish your love upon us, so that you could pour out your grace upon our sin, which has separated us from you.